0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Now is the Time to Overcome Therapeutic Inertia in T2D to Achieve Personalized Glycemic and Weight Management Goals. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash pq860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Jay Schubert from Torrey University, California in Vallejo, California. Joining me today is my co-chair, Dr. Kara Mays from Mercy Clinic Weight and Wellness in Bolin, Missouri. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be here with you. In today's presentation, we'll discuss comprehensive management of type 2 diabetes, emphasizing the need for reaching glycemic and weight goals early in the course of disease to bring lasting improvements in patient outcomes. As we move through this presentation, you'll have the opportunity to demonstrate your mastery of the material through a series of challenge questions. So let's start. We'll start focusing on comprehensive diabetes management. So this is probably no surprise to all of you, but when we look at the burden of diabetes in 2022 in the U.S., we know this is incredibly common. There's 37.3 million people with diabetes in the U.S. for a total of 11.3%. And many of them are still undiagnosed. And then if you think about that, we also have 96 million people above the age of 18, or 38% of U.S. adults, that have prediabetes. And many of them are going to progress to type 2 diabetes, with our older adults being even more susceptible. What does that lead us with? It leads us with one in three people in the United States will eventually develop diabetes in their lifetime. So what are the recommending screenings? And of course, you do this each and every day. Uh, It's important to recognize that we can diagnose diabetes multiple ways. Historically, we've used a fasting glucose or a two-hour postprandial glucose or glucose tolerance test. But these can be rather challenging to get in the clinical practice. And so with the addition of a hemoglobin A1c being another way to diagnose diabetes, this is really important because we're able now to get labs done. And diagnosis done, one, by point of care, or two, with laboratory values that don't have to be fasting or take a lot of time. Now, what's also very important is that the recommendations are now more broad, that we really should be screening adults age 35 and greater who are overweight or suffer with obesity, all the way to the age of 70. And even though these are the general recommendations, we are seeing more and more younger people being diagnosed with diabetes, especially type 2. So if you happen to find someone and their test is normal, we recommend you screen every three years. Now this rather complicated picture is really the way that we are supposed to address diabetes um, in our patients, in our practice. And, And while it looks like we're doing a lot of things, what we really want to do is focus on strategizing on a little bit more comprehensive than just glycemic management alone. So glycemic management alone is in the orange, and we're looking at the efficacy of medications as well as extra glycemic benefits. But we also, and this is supported by the ADA recommendations, should really be focusing on achieving and maintaining healthy weight goals, really making sure that we're picking treatments that allow the reduction of cardiovascular uh, risk and other risk categories, such as heart failure and chronic kidney disease. And then certainly we want to make sure that we can reduce cardiovascular risk factors. So it's time for us to think much more than just glucose alone. And then this is something you probably use in your practice each and every day. But I find that this tool is a great tool to kind of help with our patients to say, look, there is eight essential things you could be doing to reduce the majority of metabolic diseases in the United States. Certainly taking time to eat better, more whole foods, less processed foods. Taking time to be more active, that includes less sitting, but also more physical activity, including resistance activity. If you have diabetes, certainly taking the time to manage your blood sugar and and be able to know what it is, focusing on weight is one of the things that you're managing when you're managing diabetes, managing your cholesterol, blood pressure, and then certainly uh, making sure that we reduce risky behaviors such as tobacco, and remembering that sleep is an important part of self-care as well as diabetes care. As we think about healthy nutrition, there is so much confusion in there. And I think one of the things that we really want you to take from this is think about the simplified plate method. If you look on the left, half of your plate should be non-starchy vegetables. Now, there are a lot of cultural differences and differences in kind of families and the way they pick their vegetables and their starches, but this can be uniform. So no matter what your vehicle is, a bowl or a plate, half of that should be made up of non-starchy vegetables. Certainly, carbohydrates still have a role. Certainly, whole food carbohydrates would be ideal. And then depending upon... Uh, your cultural norms, you'll choose your protein, whether that's plant-based or animal-based, but certainly should be as simple as possible. And then, of course, try not to drink your calories. And so, while nutrition can be rather complicated, this is a really important tool to let our patients know there are things that they can do very simply and see each and every meal. So, as we think about physical behaviors in cardiometabolic health, I think it's important for people to think this is not just putting on spandex and sweating. We know that any of these activities have multiple benefits. And I think this is actually a great resource for you to share with your patients. Let's just look at uh, getting adequate sleep, you know, two-thirds of the way down. We know that improves your glucose control, may reduce your needs for insulin. It can improve your blood pressure. It may even have benefits in hemoglobin A1C and lipids. So again, it's not just about doing more activity. That being said, the next step would be breaking up your activity if you could do less prolonged sitting and even standing once an hour, you can see almost universally you're going to get benefits across the board. And then as we move up, increasing more steps in your life, increasing resistance training, all of these things can be incredibly impactful when you're looking at diabetes management. And when we think about diabetes management, you know, certainly in the primary care space, diabetes is one of the most measured diseases when it comes to quality metrics. So you can see the HEDIS measures when you look at comprehensive diabetes care include A1C testing. Is it done? A1C uh, level is it, and again, these terms are not very patient-centered, but poor control or good control. Is your blood pressure at the target level? Have you had an eye exam performed and documented or your patient? And have you had medical attention for nephropathy? So these are the things that we need to do to meet the quality metrics in diabetes. Now, that being said, When you look at this, we've not made a lot of progress over the last 10 years as it comes to um, hemoglobin A1C that would be defined as in control. And you can see regardless of who the payer is, uh, you have about the same level of control. One area where we have gotten better is we're certainly measuring BMI more often, and that is important if we're going to treat obesity as a condition or as a disease. Now, that being said, we know that BMI is not perfect, but it certainly has allowed us to to make this an objective measure for us to make it a treatable condition. And I think it is important to recognize that when we do better coordination of care, when we look at these HEDIS measures, you see you get better outcomes. And so you can see here, looking at the uh, performance across uh, the different uh, indicators of diabetes care, when you look at the fifth versus the 95th percentile, You can see that people do better when they have coordinated care. The one area where you have not seen the biggest benefit uh, is in the kidney disease and nephropathy. And and quite honestly, I think this this, um, data set is an outlier because 92% of people at the fifth percentile still had um, good measures of uh, kidney disease nephropathy management. And we'll show you that. But it's important to know that these things not only good for the patients, but they're also good for the system. And then what is that diabetes nephropathy and HEDIS measurement? We know that there are multiple things now. It's not the simple screen for albumin and start an ACE. We know that we have multiple things we can do. But to get credit for HEDIS measurement, you should be annually screening, not only for an EGFR, but also a urine microalbumin, which is one of your HEDIS measurements. If there is albuminuria or a reduced AGFR, you should be considering a RAS agent first and then certainly monitoring those patients. And then knowing that if the disease is progressive, continuing to look at other treatments or timely referral to nephrology so that the patient can actually get a needed treatment to prevent the progression of their diabetes, kidney disease.
0: We talked about the different things that the HEDIS measures do look at, but our first question for the audience is which of these comprehensive care goals for type 2 diabetes is important, perhaps, but not currently addressed by the HEDIS measures?
1: Yeah. So that's a big question. we talked about A1C measurement and A1C goal as being one of those things. Certainly the eye exam being completed and documented, and then certainly kidney function as you look at the albuminuria. But weight reduction, while it's still an ADA goal, um, it is not currently a HEDIS goal. And so it's still very important, but not measured by HEDIS. So Dr. Mays, as you think about this, what are the things, challenges you've had
0: when it comes to the patients and the HEDIS measurement? I think one of the biggest challenges is truly that care coordination and documentation issue. I think most of our patients are getting their eye exams, but the question of whether or not that's documented appropriately to be captured well is even harder. So certainly we have patients where they truly have difficult to control diabetes, where it is just you know very difficult to get their A1C controlled. But I think the more difficult challenges are not in the care that we're giving, but rather in proving that we're giving the correct care.
1: That team factor, right? It's always a team. Absolutely.
0: So our next topic is really going to talk about the connection between type 2 diabetes and obesity, um, also referred to as diabetes at times. These graphs show not only the BMI trends in the United States, which I think we've all seen graphs that look similar to this, but also the trends for the coexisting diabetes and obesity. You see areas that are more blue, those are people with obesity and not diabetes. When you see the areas that are red, those are counties where there's a higher portion of patients with diabetes and not necessarily obesity. But the purple, which we see a whole lot more of in the 2019 graph compared to the 2009 map, The purple is the proportion of patients with diabetes and obesity rising. But as physicians, we really need to ditch some of our old assumptions about energy balance and look at a new approach to obesity treatment. We've historically told our patients that really it's just behavior that drives the physiology of their weight. We've said, eat less, exercise more. But there's truly so much more that goes into the physiologic regulation of the energy balance there. Our old assumption was that increased calorie intake is what causes weight gain, and that all of our calories really have similar effects. Also, that the way to lose weight is to increase physical activity, which directly burns calories. Now there's a much better understanding that changes in the diet, the modern diet, have altered our energy balance physiology, and that not just the amount of calories, but also the chemical composition of calories is critical in maintaining weight, and that we really need to re-regulate a patient's abnormal physiology in order to help them be successful with obesity treatment. There are several causal relationships that link obesity and type 2 diabetes, but what I want you to focus on here are these three central boxes of adiposity, peripheral tissue insulin resistance, and hyperinsulinemia. These go back and forth to worsen each other. Hyperinsulinemia causes increased adiposity along with increased insulin resistance, which then both of those increases lead to more hyperinsulinemia. That can then go on to lead to worsening obesity along with type 2 diabetes. And we know that there is homeostatic regulation of body weight set point. Both in caloric weight loss, we see this. So when patients decrease calories to lose weight, they then have a metabolic signal that increases their appetite drive and decreases their energy expenditure, causing their weight to go back towards the set point. Same thing with weight gain in a metabolically normal person. um, As you gain a little bit of weight, you'll have a decreased appetite drive and increased energy expenditure. Any deviation from the set point should elicit a physiologic compensatory mechanism, controlling food intake and energy expenditure. So how much weight do our patients really need to lose to improve their health? It's truly not as much as most of our patients would like to lose or think they need to. And setting unrealistic weight loss goals is very common and also self-defeating. We know that a weight loss around the 5% range can in- improve a lot of aspects of health. 10% can reverse some disease processes. Um, this improves prediabetes and hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, among others. But at 15% body weight, we can truly reduce cardiovascular events for our patients and some of the other complications of disease. A weight loss of 5 to 10% might be disappointing to patients, but... I find that it's better to set a goal of 5 or 10% and celebrate that success than to set a 20% goal with really inadequate resources to help the patients because then they often quit in frustration. Once a patient hits that 5 or 10% goal, of course we can set further goals and help them continue to have success. So just like with many behavioral changes, For weight loss, motivational interviewing is the best technique that we have to help our patients, starting with the five A's. The five A's are ask, assess, advise, agree, and arrange or assist. So for ask, we want to find out their readiness for change and start with just asking for permission to discuss their weight and health. For assess, we're going to assess things like BMI and also assess potentially waist circumference and obesity stage and what some of their drivers and complications of their excess weight may be. For advising, we want to talk to the patient about the health risks of obesity, benefits of some of these modest levels of weight loss, and the need for a long-term strategy in treatment. And for agree, we really should agree with the patient on those realistic weight loss expectations and targets and details of the treatment plan. We can arrange and assist by helping to identify barriers, provide resources, um, help potentially consulting with appropriate healthcare providers, and arranging follow-up with ourselves or with other providers. And I really like this framework of communicating within the patient encounter. Um, Starting with something as simple as, is now a good time for us to discuss how your weight and health may be affecting each other and how we can work together on it? And the most important thing here, I think, is what to do if the patient says no. I love this response. I understand you may not be ready to discuss your weight. However, I am concerned about the impact of your weight on your health. There may be some things we can do together in the future. Feel free to make a follow-up appointment when you are ready for another discussion. If they say yes, then we can ask more questions using that 5A framework to really try to help them come to the best treatment for their obesity. And setting these achievable, realistic weight loss goals often helps our patients get into a virtuous cycle in obesity management. So initially, many of our patients have become in a more negative cycle where as their weight increases, it then becomes harder and harder to control some of their chronic medical conditions, like diabetes. As their diabetes gets less well-controlled, Oftentimes, the treatments for that lead to weight gain, and they feel like they're stuck in this cycle. But when we set these goals and a plan to reach the goals, we can help them get into a virtuous cycle instead, where their goals are met, their plans are working, and their distress is reduced. Once they notice these meaningful benefits, it really encourages them to adhere to their plan and be able to add new goals and new interventions. In one of the trials looking at a GLP-1-based therapy in people with type 2 diabetes, that approved glycemic control that they saw from the medication along with reduced weight was then associated with the patients adopting additional healthful behaviors like dietary modifications and increased exercise. So they truly saw this virtuous cycle in action. And just like diabetes, hypertension, or dyslipidemia, Obesity requires long-term chronic management, too. And this is an important conversation to have with our patients when we're talking about treating their obesity. Anything that they're doing to lose weight likely needs to be continued in order to maintain that weight loss. If you stop treatment, whether that be diet, exercise, physical activity, or medication, the condition has the potential to return.
1: Yeah, that's just fabulous. I love that kind of patient-centered approach a partner with your patient, and really trying to give them a chance to
0: succeed. We talked about the many benefits of weight loss in the 5 to 10% range, um, but for specifically reducing the risk of heart attack and cardiovascular events, we're looking at about the 15% body weight loss. I also think it's important to talk up to patients that their goal is not necessarily to hit that normal BMI below 25 It's very difficult for many patients with obesity to get there, and it's also really not necessary for their health. BMI should be used truly as a screening tool for our patients and never as a target for weight loss.
1: Yeah, it's such an important thing, and I I think that will reduce the unnecessary burden on our patients. Absolutely. Let's jump into that timely intensification uh, to prevent type 2 diabetes-related complications. And so, when we think about microvascular and macrovascular complications as it relates to diabetes, well, on the right-hand side, we think of the traditional microvascular complications. So we have a, a long history of intensive glucose or uh, achieving uh, better glucose goals does a better job with those microvascular complications. But I also want to highlight that we know that things like retinopathy and, and nephropathy or kidney disease can also be markers of cardiovascular risk. And so we really need to be moving beyond that. We know that for neuropathy, there is a form of cardiac autonomic neuropathy, which can be quite devastating, albeit a little bit less common. And so it's important for us to think of that as even important contributors when we look at macrovascular complications, such as coronary heart disease, heart failure, peripheral arterial disease, and stroke. And really, these are all things that are very meaningful for our patient. And ultimately, cardiovascular disease is still one of the leading causes of death for our patients with diabetes. So why do we do intensive control? We know certainly for microvascular benefits, the legacy effect can be important. But now we're going to talk a little bit more about where you are when you're diagnosed. And if you get intensive control, taking you down to 6.5 in that first year, and you can see uh, the one is where you want to be, right? And that that kind of vertical line. The further you are from one, the higher you're going to have a risk of a microvascular or a macrovascular complication and or mortality. And so it's really important that one we try to get control early and in that first year get that A1C as low as you can, because you can see on the right hand side under mortality we bump up against one or no greater risk um, if we can do that early. However, if at one year your A1C is, say, greater than 9%, you're going to have a higher risk across microvascular micro, macrovascular, and mortality complications. And then I really like this um, study from Dr. Kunti that really shows if you have someone that's been newly diagnosed and they have intensive treatment within the first year and you look at their six-month hemoglobin A1C, those on the bottom, were th- there were those patients who were able to achieve an A1C below 7. Those uh, that were above did not have intensive control or treatment, and they did not achieve an A1C of 7%. And you can see the gap. That gap is the unnecessary uh, or preventable complications. And just to put it in the blue box there, at 5.3 years, those people who did not have intensive early treatment had a 67% higher risk of MI, a 51% higher risk of stroke, a 64% higher risk of heart failure, with a composite 62% increase in cardiovascular events. So this is important to think well beyond the glucose level itself, but also be thinking about complications. Now, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, when I'm treating it, I'm overwhelmed by the number of agendas on any given visit. And we have determined clinical or therapeutic inertia is being something that's important when we're helping patients manage a chronic disease or, or condition. So you can see here, there are a bunch of studies, and you can see there are some con, uh, studies that show that certain conditions, such as, uh, as a, uh, using combination medications or point-of-service insurance, could reduce your likelihood of inertia. There's plenty of things that increase uh, therapeutic inertia, including gaps in patient-physician communication, which is, of course, critical. And then certainly there's conflicting evidence on some other things. But, you know, ultimately, I wouldn't say you have to be fixed to know all of these things. Ultimately, you've got to have that communication, that early connection with your patient and have a plan and really set your goals early. And then this is helpful tactics to help increase your patient's comfort with type 2 diabetes treatments. And I really want to highlight here the two boxes on the left. Um, you know, even though I care a lot about how a medicine works and what it's going to do, patients actually want to know how it's going to affect them. And so I think it's important for you to share with them, how am I going to take this medicine? What bad things might I feel? And how do I handle that? How do I know if it's working? And how, is, how are the risks and benefits uh, as it relates to other medications? And then ultimately, how do I fit in in my lifestyle? I also think we uh, need to be comfortable with the medication and have a handle on them so that we can actually have a two way bi directional conversation with our patients and really give information that they can react to and have shared decision making with. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I also feel like it takes a lot of time. So we need a team, and that team should involve the patient, but also can involve other healthcare professionals, such, such as certified diabetes uh, care education specialists or an ME or one of the nurses in your practice. Um, certainly we can utilize our, our electronic health record to help remind us of international interventions and then think about time-saving strategies. And we'll, we'll talk about that because that's very important when we have a busy agenda in a very short-term uh, visit for a practice. And then, uh, again, when you look at online resources, the ADA has a wonderful campaign, Overcoming Therapeutic Inertia, that has a whole toolkit that you can utilize in your practice with such suggestions such as having maybe a download station in your office, having patients um, maybe upload their devices even before they come to the visit, and then certainly reminder systems. We certainly want to leverage our insights by not only personally sharing information, utilizing best practices such as guidelines, but also working together in an integrated system in a team-based approach is really going to make a world of difference. And then certainly there is a global uh, environment full of information and uh, available for you to enhance your practice when you have time to to build upon that. And then when we think about clinic, clinician-level interventions, these are things I would really think are worth doing in your practice. So if you're in family medicine or primary care, diabetes deserves four visits per year. I think you need to have only diabetes-focused visits. And so your patients might come in and say, look, I have a headache today. I want to respect it. I'm going to treat your headache, but I'd like you to come back so we can focus on diabetes because both of these things are really important to me and I want to make sure you're getting the best care available. Certainly have a whole team approach, have your office staff remind people to maybe bring in their medications, make sure they bring in their logs, make sure they have their devices, make sure they take their shoes and socks off, that this is already ready for you when you walk into the office. Um, I think it's also important to remind people that we're going to continue to adjust therapy To reach an A1C target, just like we're going to do this with weight. So we're going to do this slowly and gradually and let you feel like you're in control as we continue to make progress on overall therapeutic goals. And then certainly, you know, most of my patients don't know what an A1C is um, in terms of the value compared to their glucose monitoring. So I think it's worthwhile to do that translation for them. There are so many things going on with our patients. So when we look at things that could help us. Don't forget about mental health conditions. Don't, think, don't forget about social determinants of health that might make self-care challenging, as well as diabetes distress. These things are all super important, and they may change the ability of the patient to do self-care. The other thing that we will commonly do is look at the frequency of the visits based upon their A1C level. This can be both a stick and a carrot for your patients and say, look, You know, right now your A1C is running quite a bit higher than we're shooting for. I'd love to see you more frequently, maybe even as often as once a month. As your A1C starts to get closer to the the goal, whatever goal you have with your patient, we might spread those visits out. And then if you're at target range, maybe we'll see you every six months. And again, that's not that we don't want to see you, but it sounds like you have a plan that's working well. And then when you make that plan with your patients, please take into account patients' needs, concerns, and wishes, this is the person that does 95% of the work of diabetes care. So please help them help themselves by making sure you make a a regimen with them that they, one, can endorse, and two, they can engage. Now, when you look at team-based care, this is one model, Vanderbilt Collaborative Diabetes Management Model, and it basically shows how they strategized a team-based pathway to include glycemia. And you can see that the patient comes in, and there are certain triggers for different things. So, is the patient meeting their goals? If they need assistance, maybe they go to education. If they're not meeting their goals, do they need a referral? And ultimately, the goal here is not to be passing patients off per se, but to give the right level of treatment to the right patients at the right time to allow them to be successful. And absolutely, we all are going to need help at some point, And that help should be something that we're comfortable uh, accessing. Another example of a very successful model is the Northwell Health uh, Clinical Inertia QI project. So again, you can see that there's intensive lifestyle therapy for all patients, starting with metformin and comprehensive lifestyle change or therapeutic lifestyle change. And then the, just like the ADA guidelines, every three months, if you're not a target, consider doing something more. So you can see that on the left, you've got your simple eight uh, lifestyle type tips. You've got referrals when you need it. And then you can see the the selection of treatment based upon the A1C level, and then at each three months, adding a therapy. Now, what's great about that is, you know, really quite honestly, no matter what therapy you pick, if it works for your patient, they're gonna achieve goals by having that intensified therapy. If they don't get intensified therapy, they're looking at injection therapy, such as insulin or GLP-1s at one year. And again, we know that these treatments are effective and should be utilized earlier in the condition And this, a treatment model such as this allows that to occur, as well as an early referral endocrinology if needed. Boy, so how often do we hear that, right? And again, I love when my patients are motivated and they're doing therapeutic lifestyle change because that helps so many things. But I also think we need to help our patients be successful. So that's not a good idea because there has been six months. And in fact, I don't know about you, but in many places where we have four seasons, The the winter months are the hardest months to really help people do therapeutic lifestyle change. And the last thing I want to do is let this condition progress, even though um, they're not a goal. So I think we would still do therapeutic lifestyle change, but that alone would probably not be enough. So I'd like to share a case with us, uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Carrie. So this is Alma. Alma is an artist with kind of an irregular schedule because she's out to different shows. And she engages that one of her challenges is she frequently socializes over alcoholic beverages. And we could just quantify that in just a minute. It. But she's had type 2 diabetes for about 10 years. Um, she has actually developed cirrhosis as is followed by hepatology. She's got hypertension. She was a former smoker, but quit about a year ago. And her introduction to diabetes was through gestational diabetes. She does have a family history of heart disease, uh, which is a driving factor. And uh, looking at her current kind of vital set, you can see that her uh, weight is 278 pounds. Um, Her current A1c is 10.1. Her blood pressure seems to be a target. um, And her lipid panel um, is reasonably well controlled. Uh, Her EGFR is greater than 90. And her UACR is still in the normal range at 11. She has slight elevations in her transaminases. And her PHQ uh, 9 is 3. She's taken metformin in the past, but she had diarrhea. She had sitagliptin, but she didn't like that because she had urinary tract infection, an uncommon side effect. But that's what she had. So she's currently taking uh, U U1 or U300, 100 units twice a day, and insulin Life's Pro three times a day with meals, and semaglutide, one milligram every week. And then she engages that she sometimes forgets to take some of this insulin. She does have a CGM, but hasn't really opened it. She's a little bit overwhelmed with what she's doing already. And one more thing seems to be too much. But she did meet with a uh, diabetes educator and was able to find out that she's eating about 45 grams per meal. uh, And she is trying to take her insulin, but she really would like to try to get her life back together and has not been able to do so uh, really since the passing of her mother, which has been one of those kind of times in her life that's been a challenge. And you can kind of see here if you, that you look over the time here, uh, her basal insulin, uh, when we added semaglutide and titrated it, we were able to reduce her basal insulin some uh, with the use of the GLP-1 on top of that while improving her hemoglobin A1c uh, and having some uh, kind of neutral weight effects. Um, she did wear a, CG, a CGM, and you can see their time and range has gotten some better. She's not having hypoglycemia. Um, so based upon all of this, she was recently switched to trisepatide. Um, and so the question is, she's on a complex regimen. So Carrie, as you think about this, what are your thoughts about using
0: trisepatide and how would you make that switch? And then what will we do with her insulin? Yeah, so I think that that switch is still a little difficult to make because we don't have the data to truly guide us from... A guideline standpoint, I I do think that we know from at least comparative studies that five milligrams of terzepatide is a little better than one milligram of semaglutide as far as efficacy for A1C. And um, so likely coming from two milligrams of semaglutide to terzepatide, she is going to need higher doses to get that improved control. But given the additional GIP aspect of the terzepatide, I'm not sure that directly switching her all the way up to one of the higher doses would have been good. So I do think that swap is appropriate. Um, Depending on patients, I think sometimes we can go a little higher, or if we're extra cautious, going back down to 2.5 to start the terzepatide, which I think is still what the prescribing information would, would recommend with that swap. Um, But I do think that the patient should be aware that the 5 milligrams is probably not a long-term dose, but rather just a dose to make sure that she's tolerating the medication okay compared to semaglutide, and that we would plan to titrate up each month, um, assuming that she's still tolerating the medication and that her um, blood sugar still needs additional control.
1: And And I think that's such an important practical piece of advice. That, you know, we got to make sure that she can tolerate this. And we do have the luxury of going up to a higher dose, but we're going to have to take time to do that. And if we do that, we very likely may be able to reduce her insulin further, which would be good for simplifying her regimen, but also probably would help her weight, I would hope.
0: Absolutely. And I think, too, with her irregular schedule and, you know, I think she had gotten better over the time with doing her short-acting insulin more reliably. Um, but still, someone with an unpredictable schedule, that's a difficult thing to do from a management standpoint.
1: Yeah. I think you've are really important points. Um, and so, you know, as we think about this, there's a lot for us to do. Um, you know, I think getting her in a regimen that's more simple, it's going to be great. Uh, absolutely. I think, that, you know, her alcohol intake, while it may be social, she's got cirrhosis, right? This is a problem both for hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia. We certainly want to help her eliminate the use. And then certainly as we look at other uh, treatments, um, hopefully that CGM becomes something that could be useful for her, not punitive for her, so it can reinforce behaviors. And I think many people will find that once they kind of get past that first um, overwhelming uh, feeling of having too much data.
0: So as we're looking beyond glucose control for our patients with diabetes, we're really back in this circle picture here, where we need to look at all of the aspects of their care. We're not just trying to decrease an A1c and get that to goal. We're trying to do that in the setting of the whole patient to prevent complications, to optimize their quality of life. And that's truly why we're working on decreasing their A1c. Some alternative targets that could be proposed for type 2 diabetes outside of glucose goals kind of depends on what their morbidities are. Um, A patient who has obesity may want to have a weight-centric focus on their goals. As we talked about earlier, a 15% weight loss will reduce their cardiovascular risk. For patients with obesity and diabetes, oftentimes the driver is insulin resistance. And so treating the insulin resistance can help treat both their diabetes and their obesity. Uh, This is somewhere between 40 and 70% of patients with type 2 diabetes. Things to consider are intensive lifestyle treatments, GLP-1s, SGLT-2s can have a little bit of weight loss as well, Um, never forgetting bariatric surgery for patients who qualify for that, Um, and then considering anti-obesity agents in addition to diabetes medications to help these patients. For patients who have diabetes and cardiovascular disease, the focus should really be more cardiocentric in trying to give them um, medications that can prevent further problems. A lot of times the driver here is inflammation and atherosclerosis. This is about 20 to 40% of our patients with diabetes. Good options there are agents that have proven cardiovascular benefit. So things like GLP1s, um, SGLT2s, and even TZDs secondary goals there. We also want to make sure that patients have good blood pressure and lipid control in addition to their glucose targets. And some patients have isolated hyperglycemia with no obesity and no cardiovascular disease. Oftentimes, the focus here is simply glucose-centric and so decreasing their A1c below 7 to try to prevent diabetes complications. The primary driver here is beta cell dysfunction, and the prevalence of this is about 10 to 20 percent of patients with diabetes. Here, the medication agents to consider are truly ones that have the most effect on A1c and blood glucose, things like GLP-1s, insulins, and ureas. And really, because there's no comorbidities, there's no secondary targets that are needed here. As we look at all of our classes of type 2 diabetes medications, one of the things that we want to look at are medications that have additional benefits for our patients. So On the left, we see a few of different medications that have been shown to have additional benefits. We have all-cause death reduction in SGLT2s, GLP-1s, and also non-steroidal MRAs. The SGLT2s and GLP-1s have really good data for additional benefits as well, including heart failure and renal disease in SGLT2 inhibitors, um, non-fatal stroke in GLP-1 receptor antagonists, And the quality of life scores have been shown to improve on SGLT2s, GLP-1s, and our newest agent, terzepatide, which doesn't completely fit into that GLP-1 category. The other data for terzepatide as far as cardiovascular risk and um, kidney outcomes is not yet um, really clear. But we do know that these medications have not only glycemic effects on multiple organ systems, but also non-glycemic effects. Um, The GLP-1 receptor antagonists can decrease inflammation in many tissues and decrease coagulation rates. Um, They help with diuresis, and therefore can decrease albuminuria. There's significant cardioprotection from GLP-1s. We talked about the decrease in body weight as well, but perhaps in some neuroprotection, and an increase in aversive responses to certain foods and activities. Decreasing postprandial lipids and decreasing steatosis and inflammation in the liver um, will happen as well. In addition to simply improving glucose levels, there are a lot of effects in the pancreas. Um, Decreased glucagon secretion, decreased beta-cell apoptosis, higher levels of insulin secretion and biosynthesis, and increased somatostatin secretion as well. For the SGLT2s, we know they can decrease blood pressure, um, decrease the oxidative stress and inflammation on the kidneys, and therefore provide some renal protection, um, decreasing preload for the heart, and um, increasing hepatic glucose output and ketogenesis. In the pancreas, SGLT2 also has a few different effects, um, including decreasing glucotoxicity and increasing glucagon production. Treating type 2 diabetes using an upstream weight-centric approach has a lot of benefits. If we simply focus on type 2 diabetes and treating the hyperglycemia, we can work to prevent our microvascular and macrovascular complications, as we've talked about. But if we go upstream and treat the obesity, the underlying cause of some of these comorbidities, we can also improve the patient's hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and coronary artery disease therefore having an even bigger effect on reducing macrovascular complications and the other downstream effects of diabetes. While talking about diabetes medications, we also need to consider the whole picture and all of the other medications that our patients with type 2 diabetes are on that may contribute to weight gain. Um, Sometimes it's their diabetes medications, like insulin sulfonylureas, Um, Sometimes it's antidepressants, and we know there's a lot of overlap between depression, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Um, Some of the antihypertensive medications can lead to weight gain. Um, And more specifically, sometimes antipsychotics, anti-seizure medications, um, different hormone therapies like glucocorticoids, all of these things can lead to increasing weight in patients. But some of our treatments can help with weight loss. This slide compares all of our approved agents for diabetes treatment and their weight reduction versus the standard treatments in in their different trials that they were in. So we see insulin, both basal insulin and basal bolus and bolus alone are all on the weight gain side of this chart. Um, On the weight loss side of this chart, we start with metformin and some of the older GLP-1s, move into the SGLT-2s, and followed by our newer GLP-1s and terzepatide, which show the highest amounts of weight loss in our trials. It's also important to set realistic expectations for our patients. As we talked about, 5 to 10% of body weight loss can make a big difference. Um, these are the different medications that are FDA-approved for long-term use for weight loss and the amounts of weight that they showed in their trials. The highest out of these was phentermine-topiramate. Um, And this was specifically in patients with diabetes that these were studied in these numbers. So semaglutide in patients with diabetes, uh, the 2.4 milligram dose approved for obesity treatment, really only led to about a 6% weight change um, compared to placebo at 12 months. And although trisepatide is not currently approved for the treatment of obesity, it is approved for the treatment of diabetes. And so I wanted to talk about some of the weight loss from these different trials um, the Surpass trials for Tirzepatide were studies of patients with diabetes, which really focused on A1C control and glucose goals. Um, Surpass three patients were already on Metformin and possibly an SGLT two, and in Surpass four patients were already on um, one to three medications prior to the addition of Tirzepatide. If you look at the weight loss in these studies, the A1C is listed down at the very bottom of this chart and kind of looks hidden, about the 2-plus percent range for A1C reduction. But the weight reduction here in the surpassed trials is up to about 13% on average for patients with diabetes. And then the SURMOUNT-2 and SURMOUNT-1 trials really emphasize how patients with type 2 diabetes Tend to lose less weight on almost all of our anti obesity medications compared to patients without type 2 diabetes. So, all the way to the right, the Surmount 1 trial, those are patients without type 2 diabetes who are taking terzepatide simply for obesity treatment. And then the Surmount 2 right next to that is patients with diabetes who are taking terzepatide for weight management. And the numbers are significantly smaller from a weight perspective. So I think we can all quickly point out glycemia as a priority for our patients with diabetes. But thinking about those downstream effects or upstream, really, effects of treating obesity, um, really emphasizing a patient's weight loss goals um, is important as well for treating their diabetes well.
1: Yeah, and the ADA has highlighted that in the 2023 standards of care as, as being one of the priority targets. But you're right. All of these things are super important.
0: This is really a great question. And a lot of these answers could potentially be okay options. But I think the key here is that this patient has risk factors for stroke, and I assume wants to decrease that risk. So the only medication that seems to have stroke prevention benefits are the GLP-1s. So the correct answer is to switch their DPP-4 to a GLP-1 agonist as opposed to just adding a GLP-1 agonist because you don't want to use those two medications together.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. And again, while all of these things might improve glycemia, you're, this is the one treatment option that can also reduce the risk for stroke.
0: So I think a lot of these answers are are good answers, but there truly is one best answer here. Um, given the patient's risk factors for stroke, I think the best option is to switch their DPP-4 to a GLP-1 receptor antagonist, because that is the only thing that has been shown to have cerebrovascular protection.
1: I think that's such an important thing, because we know that uh, you're not only treating glucose, but this, this is the one class that's listed here that has stroke benefit. Um, and it's unique in this class that it has that stroke benefit.
0: And then now we've got another case study. This is Bobby. She's 54 years old. Um, she works as a home care aide with a pretty unpredictable schedule and usually only eats two meals a day. She's had type 2 diabetes for 12 years, along with dyslipidemia, hypertension, um, slightly more recently fatty liver disease, and inferior MI about four years ago. Her weight is 220 pounds with a BMI of 36. She does have trunkal obesity present. Blood work shows A1C of 8.8% currently, with elevated triglycerides and total cholesterol and an LDL that can't be calculated. Her blood pressure at this visit is 142 over 88, pulse of 78. Her GFR is 54, um, with a BUN of 28, creatinine 1.4, with a urinary albumin creatinine ratio of 68 milligrams per gram. Her AST and ALT are elevated. Um, CBC is normal outside of platelets 148, and her electrolytes are all normal. On review of systems, she does report fatigue, poor sleep, knee pain, some leg swelling, and has, on-exam, 1-plus edema on both lower extremities. Current medications are metformin, 1,000 milligrams BID, glipizide, 10 milligrams BID, and insulin glargine, 64 units at night. For non-diabetic conditions, she's also on simvastatin, 40 milligrams, lisinopril, 20 milligrams, hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams, and metoprolol, 50 milligrams per day. She doesn't check her blood glucose, because every time she has in the past, it's always been high. Um, She does have some shaky spells, though, about twice a week when she skips a meal. Um, She does skip her insulin when these occur, and she really wants to find a better way to get into control. This is a really typical patient for us. Um, Where do you think your first steps would be for Bobby?
1: Yeah, so as you think about this, there are so many places you could start, and, you know, you've got this problem list here. Uh, And again, you could really pick anything. What I worry most about for this person is this is someone with an unpredictable schedule on a sulfonylurea and insulin and is having hypoglycemia. So I I think I'd be worried about that first. All of these things are super important. And of course, her kidney function might be contributing. But I would say I got to get rid of
0: damage first. Um, What do you think? I agree. I think, especially in someone who's not wanting to or able to check their blood sugars regularly, I think her regimen is setting her up for hypoglycemic episodes. But I wonder how how much can you change there? How how aggressively would you reduce her risk of hypoglycemia in, in medication treatment? Yeah,
1: so I think about this, you know, I rarely use sulfonylureas and insulin together. So I might want to have that conversation with Bobby and say, would you prefer to stop the sulfonylurea or maybe have your insulin reduced? I think that's part of that shared decision-making, but for sure, she's going to need a regimen that matches her life. Right now, she's trying to make her life match her regimen. So I think um, this is a place where you can take big reductions down and then maybe help her get back under control.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think she would do it wonderfully with having an injection once a week, perhaps, instead of you know daily or more than daily. And then obviously we have a lot of other places that we can work on, Bobby's management as well. But this is a patient where it's really going to be great to use that shared decision-making, address maybe one or two of these things at a time, and schedule a follow-up visit to continue to address these things. I think we definitely want to intensify treatment and help our patients get to goal in all of these areas, but it doesn't all have to be in one day and in one visit. So, I'm going to take us home with shared decision-making,
1: helping our patients uh, have personal success when they're managing type 2 diabetes and their weight. So, when we look at shared decision-making, it's really important, and again, you all probably do this, to make sure you're employing shared decision-making to collaborate with your patients and develop uh, diabetes plans that are individualized to that patient. We know that shared decision-making can improve decision-making because patients have better knowledge and they understand their risks. So the decision is a a knowledgeable, uh, or the decision is a knowledgeable decision. We also know that it's important for us to acknowledge and address the emotional and social determinants uh, needs for our patients because they are significant and they may interfere with our our care. And then certainly, it's really important for us to know that diabetes is largely self-managed. So is the management of obesity And so we want to make sure our patients are better able to do self-care. We're just providing them tools and information and resources. Now, this is one tool that's really meant to kind of check to make sure you're involved in shared decision-making. And you can read through the statements, but each of these statements are for our our patient to answer. Did my doctor make it clear to me that a decision needs to be made? Was it clear that I wanted to know exactly what I needed to be involved in to make that decision? The doctor told me there's different options for treating my condition, and my doctor explained the advantages and disadvantages of EATS. I felt like I understood with my physician's help all the information, and the physician asked me what treatment I prefer. I know these are steps, but it's important for us to think through them. My doctor and I thoroughly weighed the different options, and we selected one together, and we agreed on how to proceed. So that's step-by-step thing that we do subconsciously, but it is very important to be mindful of that. And the reason why that is, is that we have not always done great. So here's a study looking at patients and their healthcare clinicians and looking at, did we uh, really engage in full shared decision-making? We're gonna highlight the top and bottom. So the patients on the left, the healthcare professionals on the right. So my patient, my healthcare provider helped me understand the information needed. So the patient, if you look at that, um, going from most positive to most negative, about 50% said, yes, help me completely or strongly. But if you looked at the healthcare professional, they thought 82% thought that they were very helpful or mostly helpful. None of the healthcare professionals strongly disagreed or completely disagreed, but you can see a sizable number in the um, kind of dark and purple disagreed. If you go down to the bottom, my healthcare provider um, thoroughly weighed the different treatment options. Again, patients would say that about 39% of the time, they completely agreed or strongly agreed. But on the healthcare professional side, it was closer to 60%. And again, you can see those blue, dark, and purple. Um, those are people that are neutral, strongly disagree, or completely disagree. So we could be doing better. And I think this is a call out to us all to, to be mindful and practice these skills with our patients. This is one such shared decision-making tool from the Mayo Clinic, and it is somewhat dated, but it's handouts that were given to the patient that gave them different information to select a treatment with, and it gave them the tools. So you can see that this is a free online resource. Now, I know that our patients are all very different, right? Some of us have an external locus of control, some have an internal locus of control. And so here are some tools to help you with kind of addressing both of those patients. So if someone has an internal locus of control, they tend to take charge of their own health. And here are points of emphasis, you know, propose small steps. Here's another challenge for you, or this will help you. Focus on feeling good. Keep up the great work. You know, you're in the driver's seat. These are great terminologies to be using with someone with an internal locus of control. But that's not true for everyone. I have a number of patients that have an external locus of control. So you might propose small steps again, but you might have to have a different focus. It's important for you to do blank. I know that this must be hard, but I strongly recommend. And again, these messages are not always landed on people exactly the same. So knowing your patients allows you to really have that focus of, where am I going to focus my efforts, my energy, and my linguistic clues to best help my patient be involved in that decision? Now, like I said, and I say all the time, you do not have to go it alone all patients really should have, really quite honestly, and at the time of diagnosis, diabetes self-management, education, and support. And we already know that a minority of people actually get that done. And one are most important times, I would say a diagnosis, when a complication starts to uh, affect the care or when life transitions occur. So you've heard about maybe a patient had an MI in one of the cases. Maybe one of the patients lost a family member who was helping in the care. Or certainly a diagnosis. These are times where people need help to know what is the best practices in self-care. And you can see in the bottom right there that when patients go to diabetes self-management education support, there are noticeable benefits in the hemoglobin A1C. And those that have both that and medical nutrition therapy can get up to a 2% A1C reduction. And that's as good as any medication. So again, don't underestimate the power of having your patients get. Diabetes education. Again, this is kind of showing that only seven percent of patients with diabetes actually got diabetes management education and support. We said, well, maybe this is a telemedicine problem. Even then, it's only eleven percent. And those who do go, often they don't go or don't finish. And you can see that some of the clues are: what's the point? What do I know? Um, it, you know, what I don't know is won't annoy me let's, you know, I feel like a number. I don't feel valued. And so it's important for us to say, and this is, I would say, in the primary care space, a strong recommendation for diabetes education support is one of the best indicators that your patient's going to go and get that needed help. And I often say, you know, I don't send my kids to drive my car until they have driver's ed. That would be crazy. They're going to figure out how to drive eventually, but that would be very painful. Please don't do that with your patients with diabetes give them the tools and the education that they have to be successful. And we know that there are national bodies and quality uh, bodies looking at creating a framework to make sure that our patients are getting the care they need to access equity and coordination and that the government is all in to support that. Of course, all of these things are important, but ultimately, the patient has to be able to make a choice. And for a patient to make a choice, They have to have the information provided to them the way they understand, and you can thoroughly weigh the treatment options for them to make a decision. So I think this, to me, would be the best answer for that scenario.
0: I agree. Our our patients can't weigh their treatment options a lot of times without us helping them do that. We have to talk about some of the pros and cons, risks and benefits of all of the things that we're discussing with them. So what are our key takeaways from today? We know that the ADA, AHA, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services are committed to preventing and treating type 2 diabetes, and key to both of these initiatives are management of weight and glycemia.
1: And we know that timely intensification therapy is critical to prevent or reverse complications of type 2 diabetes.
0: Many of the medicines that we use to regulate glycemia, mood, also can have significant effects on weight but we have highly effective glucose-lowering agents that also reduce weight available to use.
1: So coordinating care with the healthcare team, using respectful language, and referral to diabetes health management education and support are all associated with better patient outcomes. So that ends our presentation for today. I'd like to thank my co-chair, Dr. Mays, for an excellent discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Shubrook. I hope you found this activity to be informative. This presentation was developed as a companion activity to a Project ECHO workshop series. Please check out the downloadable practice aids. They have been designed to be useful in all types of primary care practices and might save you some time. Thank you very much for participating.
0: This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine and PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the American College of Diabetology. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash PQU860.
1: This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.